This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast, friends. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm so glad you're here today. If you're new, a special welcome. I hope you really enjoyed this episode and that you're able to go back and check out some of my older episodes. Today, I'm talking with Krish Omara Vinaraha. She is the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration Services, L-I-R-S. Prior to that, the policy director for Michelle Obama. Yes, the one and only Michelle Obama. And she also recently ran for governor of Maryland when her daughter was only three months old. She has this great ad um, that you've got to see um, that she did while nursing her daughter. It was awesome. Today, I talk with Krish about her impressive career trajectory, and she lets us in on how cool Michelle Obama actually is. It's true, guys. It's true what you've heard. We also talk about some of the great work that Lurz is doing and discuss some of the very real misconceptions out there about immigration right now and how some of the current policies in place can be harmful. I also love Krish's passion for activating women and get to get more involved in political and executive leadership. It's contagious, so watch out. You might feel inspired to make a move after hearing this conversation. I know I did. Krish also delves out some incredible life and career advice you don't want to miss. And we also delve into mom life, the work-life balance that's so hard to attain, and how she sees her professional and personal rules as actually vitally intertwined. I love that. Enjoy this conversation with Krish. All right. Well, Krish, thank you so much for joining me on the Worth Your Time podcast today. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Yeah. So uh, for listeners, you are the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, also L-I-R-S. You'll see that a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And prior to that, you were the policy director for Michelle Obama. So we have a very impressive person on our hands today. (laughs) Um, So I'm excited to hear about some of those things that you've done professionally. But I'd love to start by asking you a little more about yourself personally, who's part of your family, part of your life, and what are the important things to you? Sure. So my, I guess, partner in crime is my husband, um, Colin O'Mara. Together we have a daughter um, named Alana, who is now two and a half, um, going on 20, it seems. (laughs) Uh, um, We are very lucky that uh, my parents are local. And I only note that kind of um, in connection with my daughter, because, uh, you know, when I um, ran for office, uh, both of us now run national nonprofits. It is incredibly um, helpful and, and frankly invaluable um, that we have that sort of support network. Um, I have one other sibling, uh, my brother, who's actually also, I guess, involved in in public service in the sense that he's actually running for mayor of Baltimore. Um, but so sometimes people ask, they're like, were your parents politicians? And I'm like, farthest from it. They were, they were public school teachers. Um, so my father actually finally retired. He was 80 um, when he retired a couple years ago, struck a deal with him. And I said, if you retire from that full-time job, I will give you another. So he retired the June that my daughter was born. Oh, so he became yeah. the grandpa in chief. 
Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, I want to also uh, talk about your your time running for office because I think that's really cool that you did that. Um, but in my research and looking at your website and everything, I saw that your family arrived to the United States when you were a child, uh, fleeing the Civil War in Sri Lanka. How has that history shaped who you are and maybe influenced your decision to go into politics? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely know how incredibly fortunate my family is. Um, my parents fled a civil war when I was nine months old. And so I am truly sort of the beneficiary of their, um, you know, some would say it's boldness. Um, some would say it's desperation. Um, obviously, when we see the news today and people wonder why do parents um, take the risks that they do uh, with children, I think that, um, you know, to me, it's a very personal question because I do think for my family, um, it was the recognition that we not only needed to flee the country, but we had the good fortune of coming um, to what I view as the promised land. Um, so, you know, we, uh, I think, realized that uh, I was one of the lucky ones, um, and I think that is what has driven a lot of my um, career choices. Um, and uh, that's, I think, um, a lot of kind of how I uh, my daughter. Oh, no worries. Uh, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, and so, um, so I think it did. It led a lot of my, my choices um, in terms of what I wanted to do, which is to pay it forward. Yeah, that's really cool. And so I would love to hear sort of just the brief history of how you ended up where you are and maybe also give us a peek inside how you landed that job with Michelle Obama. Yeah, so I had, you know, come out of law school um, knowing that I wanted to um, go into public service. Uh, so I um, joined the Obama administration at the end of the first term. So I came, um, I, I joined the State Department as a senior advisor um, under Secretary Clinton. And then I stayed on under Secretary Kerry. So I was at the State Department for three years. When I got an email um, out of the blue, uh, and um, the email said, Would you consider interviewing? Um, you know, to serve uh, Michelle Obama. And, and honestly, like, I thought it was such a, a hoax email that I deleted it. Oh, and my gosh. I said to myself, well, wait a second. Maybe I should look into this and see if there's anything um, to it. And so I responded, um, went through a series of emails, was very uh, blessed to land the job. And um, that's how I uh, that's how I went to the White House. And so I um, served there for um, the remaining basically two years. So I assume, did you have to interview with her? Um, so no. So I actually, I interviewed uh, with basically every other layer um, and then and then met with her. Um, but I think at that point, it was sort of a done deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. that That's amazing. I mean, I hear so many good things about her. Is there anything you can tell us? Is she a pretty cool boss? So um, she's uh, not just as cool as she seems. <laughs> she's even cooler, if that's even kind of... Um, possible to imagine. Uh -huh. um, you know, I, I love the fact that she, uh, you know, she, she didn't um, uh, kind of ad ad adopt um, orthodoxy um, in terms of the role that she was kind of uh, scripted to play. Um, she had an incredible discipline in knowing that time was limited. And so she um, clearly had a kind of laser focus in terms of wanting to 
make a significant impact. And I think that, you know, the way she talked about the issues that she really wanted to focus on, um, obviously there was, I think, a real passion with some of them. Um, but particularly, uh, you know, with like Let Girls Learn, for example, um, uh, but you could tell she really wanted to work on issues that were of national importance that didn't get the attention that they deserved. Mm-hmm. And and so it was soon after that that you wanted to you decided to run for governor of Maryland. So tell me how you'd made that decision because that's really exciting. It's a big decision. It's a lot of yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and especially, so when I left the administration, I was pregnant um, with my daughter, and I had always worked on uh, policy, um, not politics, Uh, and so I left the administration, um, had, you know, I think a lot of people wanted to hear about my experiences in the White House, and uh, many of these speeches I, you know, didn't hold back and would talk a little bit about the direction of politics in the nation, because obviously, um, you know, it was a uh, top of mind. Um, and as I was giving these speeches, people said to me, why aren't you running for office? And candidly, it just had never crossed my mind. Um, and I didn't have a good answer for uh, why not, um, but I did have a good answer for why. Uh, so I ran for governor, particularly with a focus um, on on women in politics and representation. I was mm-hmm. the only woman running against eight men. Wow. Which is still shocking to me. Yeah. In a state, you know, as diverse as Maryland. Uh, yeah. And then another uh, kind of key um, piece of, uh, in terms of my, my focus, um, you know, and, and so I'll just say that um, in terms of kind of p- policy priority areas, um, obviously I think it's notable that when I launched my campaign, it was on my daughter's third month birthday. Mm-hmm. And the first policy I announced was making Maryland the first state in the nation to guarantee three months of paid family leave. Mm-hmm. Because I know that I'd been the beneficiary of that time to be with my daughter. Um, you know, and I know that I benefited and I know she benefited. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, society uh, benefits from that time period that we give, um, you know, uh, parents and, and children. Um, but then another key area for me was education. Um, both my parents, uh, you know, taught in the public schools. Um, I was a product of public schools. Um, and I just, you know, think that um, education is really that springboard of opportunity. Um, and if we can't guarantee that baseline um, of an ability to succeed and an ability for children to realize their potential um, that I don't know how we can be the leader of the free world. And so um, it was it was an area that was, I think, kind of uh, a real focal point of the governor's race. Um, and I think it's ultimately what made me decide, even though I had a small baby at home, that um, it was an issue that I was fighting for her uh, and, and, her, and her generation um, around. And you, uh, speaking of your daughter being three months old, you did a commercial while you were breastfeeding. Was that your idea? Yeah, so it it was very organic in the sense that, you know, I'd come, I mean, oftentimes when I'd be out uh, on the campaign trail, um, she'd come with me. And so in in many ways, I actually think that I was very lucky not to be in a nine to five job um, because uh, wherever I'd go, she'd um, go with me, you know, assuming that it it, it, um, oftentimes it it did make sense. And I I love that time. Um, And it was also the case that uh, when... I'd be at home, whether it was dialing for dollars or if after a day of uh, being 
uh, out there stumping, I'd be back at home. Uh, my team would would meet with me um, at our home and uh, sitting around the dinner table, uh, kind of the, the dining table. Um, oftentimes, my daughter would, uh, you know, herself be hungry, and so she'd um, she'd come and she'd join me and she'd nurse. And it was, um, you know, I think it was actually a staff member who just observed it. It was so natural um, to our dynamic, and so in the video. Just as I'm playing with my daughter, I'm reading to my daughter, um, I'm nursing my daughter because that was a core, you know, part of our relationship, especially early on. And and the idea of hiding that um, seemed very unnatural. Yeah. And you also, you talked about a lot of really cool stats in that ad and some of the other things in your campaign about how there are lower incarceration rates and things like that when women are in office. How did you find that information and, and how how powerfully were you able to really um, send that message to people? Because I didn't know that and I thought it was super interesting. Yeah, and, and I will tell you that it's something that I intuitively felt and I think that in a lot of conversations, um, kind of there, there was that assumption. But candidly, uh, as I was you know, thinking about how to make the case. And, you know, I, my, my background when I was in college, um, you know, I studied molecular cellular and development biology. Um, I'm very much kind of a numbers gal. And I thought, how do I explain what I'm saying? Because I think it's resonating, but I want to be grounded in the data. And so, you know, did the research myself. And it was fascinating to me how surprising it was to even kind of learned um, journalists, who, uh, when we put out the ad, actually wanted to see the studies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- there are, there are a number of studies that show the range um, of, of evidence uh, of how uh, women um, in not just kind of legislative positions, but executive leadership positions lead to better results. Yeah. Now, did you, when you went into the campaign, and, and I don't know the landscape much in Maryland in terms of political um, stuff, but did you have expectations? Like, did you think, hey, I really have a shot? Or was it more about the principle? Yeah, so I I definitely didn't do it as a branding exercise. Um, I'm, I guess, a, a competitive person by nature. And so I was in it to win it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that it was not a cakewalk. And in fact, it was going to be an uphill battle. Um, but and, and, you know, th- there was a, my, my theory of, uh, of change and my path to victory hinged a little bit on this idea that, um, that women in particular would be up in arms, uh, given, um, kind of recent events. And, and so my, my hope was that, um, that, that the message would resonate. Um, but the trouble is, and I think that this is something that I, I learned, unfortunately, uh, through the experience is that in a statewide race, um, money is king. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that statement in a gendered way because uh, it is very difficult as a woman candidate to raise money. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that only twenty percent of political donations come from women um, is a part of this. So, and, and I and I stress that because look, like women are part of the problem here. Um, the number of times you know I just came back from the Fortune Most Powerful Women's um, Next Gen Summit, and I will tell you, having attended the, the that uh, summit as well as the. Um, Fortune Most Powerful Women Summit in in D.C., where you're interacting with founders of startups, um, CEOs, CFOs, COOs. The number of times I'd have a conversation with a woman who would say, I love 
your message. I love who you are. I love your experience. I think you'd be the best candidate. But I need to talk to my husband um, before mm-hmm. I donate. Um, by contrast to, I, I, I actually cannot remember an occasion where a man said that. Hmm. Um, I think speaks to the just the, the different dynamic. And so though we were outspent by the vast majority of, of the guys in the field, um, you know, came in essentially tied for third out of a field of nine. Um, and it's pretty good. That. Yeah, proud of that result. But obviously, um, you know, I was I was disappointed. I I really um, I, I, I wanted to win. I, I look at, um, you know, kind of what's been happening even these days when we're talking about uh, in, in Maryland, we have this Kerwin Commission that came up with some recommendations um, where our, our governor isn't terribly clean and, in fact, has publicly opposed um, how do we invest in our children's education. And it, you know, it, it just um, it, it makes me uh, it's a good reminder of what what is at stake, um, what was at stake. Um, but people need to turn out. And um, we didn't have the turnout that we expected um, that race. And, you know, when when you realize that we did incredibly well uh, in terms of the conversion rate, if a, if a voter heard about us, um, they had a significant likelihood of voting for us. Mm-hmm. But if, uh, you know, you have scarce resources and you're running a statewide race in a very um, expensive state in terms of the two media markets, the D.C. metro market and then the Baltimore market, um, that's why I say money is king, and until that changes, I think it's going to be difficult to have the diversity in representation actually reflect the diversity of our communities. Do you think you'll ever run again? Oh, um, <laughs> I never say never, um, but I think for me, uh, you know, as, as long as I, to, to me, it's always going to be about um, what's the opportunity ca- cost, and am I in a role um, where I feel like I. Uh, can have impact. Um, you know, I, I, I feel uh, frustrated sometimes when I look at the political landscape in terms of the complacency or the silence of um, kind of the, that that mo- moderate majority mm-hmm. um, that's in the middle. And, and I sort of wonder why people take for granted, um, you know, the, the right to vote. Um, and, and I say that as someone who wasn't engaged in politics, um, in the past. And I think that I, you know, maybe I'm sort of one of those born agains where I really do feel how important it is to evangelize, um, about the need for people to engage, um, whatever way they want, but people need to engage and step up. Um, and so I, I feel very committed and passionate about playing my role, um, as an activist, but you find different ways to do that. And so for, for me right now, I'm running an immigration, a national immigration nonprofit, um, really on an issue that I think is one that will define us. Um, it's very satisfying. And so for me, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of my contribution. That's really cool. Yeah. I want to talk about your organization. Now, after the campaign, did you have a plan or were you approached by them to lead this organization? How did that work? So uh, an executive search firm was uh, running the search for LIRS. Um, It was a nationwide search. So they actually approached me about the job. Um, I opened up the prospectus and thought, huh, what an interesting organization. And the uh, and the fact that it was headquartered in, in Baltimore, um, you know, kind of my, my hometown, um, made it all the more enticing. Um, you know, I hadn't heard much about it, so I did my due diligence, realized that it was an amazing organization that had 80 years of history under its belt, and the opportunity to work on 
um, you know, an issue that's in the news uh, day in and day out, um, an issue that I really do think will define us as a nation and as a generation. Um, to me, it felt like a calling um, that also felt like coming full circle, given my, you know, personal background of, of mm -hmm. uh, family um, that was an ethnic and religious minority, um, you know, where we had, uh, you know, fled the country um, in the hopes of finding safety and security. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you guys do. And, you know, I came in contact with you writing a story about um, things related to the immigration crisis and the um, polarization and some of the things that are happening and specifically your work with um, kids that are traveling um, into the yeah. United States and need foster homes. Um, so tell me a bit about, I mean, people see headlines, they see numbers, but what can you tell us that's true? What, what do we know right now about the numbers of people that are coming to the United States and how are the current policies, um, a hindrance to to good things that can happen with immigration. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'll I'll answer it um, by talking about two kind of particular types types of programming um, to give you kind of a more robust sense of, of the landscape. So when people talk about how the country is full, um, I want to contextualize that because this is not anywhere close to sort of the historic highs. Um, of 2000 in terms of immigrants coming across the southern border. Um, but also when you think about the immigrant population of the country, um, compared to 1900, um, we're about a percentage point lower um, in terms of immigrants being represented in the community. I mean, the reality is, is that unless you were Native American or brought here um, by slavery, uh, you were um, an immigrant. And I think sometimes we forget that history. So the dynamic of immigration has changed in the sense that it's no longer a single male crossing the border trying to evade detection. Um, in the last couple of years, what we've seen are families, uh, typically a parent and a child, crossing the border and seeking out an immigration official in order to seek asylum. So this is in terms of asylum seekers on our southern border. And what has been deeply troubling for me um, as a mom is the fact that that experience has been incredibly torturous. Um, the detention conditions have obviously been horrific. Um, you know, at, the, at this moment, it has become even worse in the sense that the strategy seems to be pushing um, people out of sight, out of mind, where the southern border, due to a progressive set of policies, the golden door has essentially been shut. Um, so through metering, the Remain in Mexico policy, as well as a safe third country rule. I'm happy to go into details about any of those policies. But as a result, we see, you know, by some accounts, 50 to 60,000 families and children who are living in squalor, um, squatting in, in, you know, temporary tents, shelters um, in, in a country that has, you know, obviously um, a, a much more limited set of resources um, that they can put towards this. And at the same time, you know, we have led the border operations in New Mexico and Arizona. We have volunteers, communities, congregations who have stepped up to respond in a way that this hasn't been, you know, kind of a, a, a quote unquote suck on taxpayer dollars because communities have, have known how important immigration 
has been, um, you know, the Lutheran communities that, you know, we kind of have um, built a, a longstanding relationship with view this as, as a part of their faith in terms of welcoming the stranger. And so it is really tragic that due to the policies that we have seen, um, the door has been shut, um, particularly on family separation. We mm-hmm. were one of the two national organizations the government turned to in terms of responding to the crisis last summer um, in order to help reunify families. But the tragic reality is, though, the policies end of the practice continues. And so in the last several months, we've still had, um, you know, uh, nearly 40 children who've come into our custody and care who were ripped um, from a parent, including four under the age of one. So truly Mm. babies. Um, But another piece, just to give you kind of a sense of the fact that this dynamic is not isolated to the southern border, is refugee resettlement. An issue that is, you know, a program that's always had bipartisan support. In fact, President Reagan hired, uh, kind of resettled the highest number of refugees of any president. We've actually resettled more refugees under Republican administrations than Democratic administrations. And this program is such a integral part of who we are as a nation and what we represent in the sense that this program brings over religiously persecuted, um, you know, for example, Christian minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings over uh, the interpreters and translators and drivers who risk their lives and their families' lives working alongside our our, our American soldiers um, abroad. And so this is where some of our national security colleagues are our most vocal advocates about how to protect our ability to fight the next war. We have to have a robust program that doesn't leave, um, you know, these these individuals and families behind. Um, and, and this is where it is quite sad to see how this program went from accepting 110,000 refugees just a few years ago uh, to 45,000 to 30,000. And, and for this upcoming year, we're only going to be accepting 18,000 at a time mm-hmm. when the need is historically high. Um, we have nearly 71 million people around the world who've been displaced by violence, persecution and war, not to mention a growing trend, which is that the majority of migrants um, displaced are actually due to climate um, and the climate crisis. So this is where, you know, for us, um, we are just horrified by the fact that um, these these programs that I, I, I do think, you know, they, they're not just the right thing for us to do, but they're the smart thing for us to do in terms of bringing in talented, um, well-meaning, families, children, um, it's just, uh, it, it's just um, mind boggling how we've shut uh, the door on, on, um, on a number of avenues through which immigrants would come to the country. And are you seeing either from your uh, organization or, or someone else or somewhere else, any messaging, any stories, any movement in making the general public sort of understand what's really happening? Because you know, I think there's yeah. always a lot of misconceptions, but are there people out there who maybe originally supported some of these immigration policies, but the, the needle is sort of moving and helping them yeah. to understand why maybe they're not what they thought they were? Yeah, no, and, and, and that is, I think, the trouble that that I see with how we have historically laid the groundwork, um, you know, in a, in a time of abundancy, um, because I do think that we have this scarcity mentality right now where we're pitting groups against one another 
um, you know, I think tragically for just kind of political purposes. And, and that's where I, I always say to my staff, either we tell the story or the story is going to be told for us. Mm-hmm. And the narrative that's actually based on reality and data is an incredibly compelling one, right? The fact that um, refugees, for example, over a 10-year period in a study that was commissioned by this administration were shown to um, contribute a net 62 to $63 billion over 10 years is just one metric of, of how um, you know immigrants have been job creators, um, you know, and I, th- I think that's an important piece in terms of the economic argument, but also highlighting the fact that, you know, the Cato Institute, for example, has done a great longitudinal study to show that immigrants are not, one, stealing Americans' jobs, or two, depressing wages. Um, but I also think that kind of another piece of this myth-busting that, that is our responsibility is um, you know, we, we hear this narrative of, of immigrants as crime-perpetrating assailants. And the truth um, couldn't be any farther from that because, you know, when you look at the southern border, 21 of the 22 counties are actually much safer than comparable counties um, inland. And, and likewise, you know, when you look at refugees, for example, they go through such extreme vetting. I mean, frankly, I'm sure some of my friends wouldn't be able to go through that <laughs> right. kind of vetting and come out, you know. Um, but that's why it's not all that surprising when you look at, you know, a study that was done that showed that of the uh, 10 cities that received the highest number of refugees per capita, nine of the 10 were actually significantly safer um, mm-hmm. on everything from commercial crime to violent crime. And the one exception was West Springfield, Massachusetts, which at the time was going through um, a, you know, uh, the the opioid epidemic and a significant spike um, in in violence, you know, um, disconnected to to immigration. And so that's where I, I just think that, uh, you know, part of it is that as faith based organizations, our historical perspective had always been keep our heads down, do the good work, the rest would speak for itself because we didn't. You know, we didn't engage in advocacy or, um, you know, grassroots mobilization in terms of kind of the the messaging. And I think that what we're realizing is that that has been to our detriment because some of these, um, you know, programs um, are on the chopping board because, you know, we, we just haven't made the case. And I just think it's really sad that this has become this issue, um, this field of immigration has become political pinball. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Mm-hmm. 
And now you guys are a faith-based organization. How do you, I don't know if you partner with churches, but how do you see um, other, like churches or other faith-based organizations kind of partnering with you to help people find, you know, place resources, safety, things like that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, and I always, um, I think sometimes the, the Lutheran um, part of our name uh, throws people a lot off. So uh, I'll just, you know, clarify. So we're, a, you know, we're a 501c3. Um, you know, we're an independent entity of, of, of church. But many of the um, organizations that work in this space are faith-based, right? It's not all that surprising. Catholic Belief Services, um, uh, you know, just to give you an example, um, or uh, USCCB, the Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, and, and I think it's actually such a beautiful partnership because we find that there are so many communities and congregations across the country that are um, incredibly moved, have had some history of working with you know, whether it was the Cuban refugees coming over um, or the Vietnamese refugees after North Vietnam over through South Vietnam, uh, people recognize that, you know, this is as much of a Lutheran legacy as it is an American legacy. And so for me, part of what I find um, incredibly important as our job is to not just highlight the, the problem and describe that, but also make it clear to people how they can engage on the issue mm -hmm. in a way that they're part of the solution. Because I think it's so easy to turn on the TV or open up a newspaper and just frankly be overwhelmed by, you know, this issue. Um, and, and yet, you know, whether you're on the border or in Seattle, Washington or, um, you know, uh, Burlington, Vermont, people can play a role um, in, in some way um, on this issue. And so I think that's where for us uh, our... Um, kind of history as a faith-based organization is valuable because we have um, individuals, congregations, um, even non-faith communities who have thankfully supported our efforts. And where do you think, or where might you direct people to get, you know, the best information? Because we have so much thrown at us, mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. even a headline on you know, a reputable news site sometimes, it really yeah. requires more digging. So are yeah. there places where people are giving kind of analyzing some of those headlines where you can get accurate information yeah i mean and i you know i i hate to make a plug for lrs but i honestly <laughs> i mean one of the things that we do try to do is to provide um you know fact to replace fiction um and so you know anyone should feel free to go to lirs.org um you know we we try to uh provide the information in bite-sized nuggets um, for, for people who aren't living day in and day out in this immigration space um, so they can understand really what's, what's happening. Um, and, and we also try to make it in a way that people can engage. Um, you know, when I was working as uh, Michelle Obama's policy director, one of the most important things for us was to not just meet people where they were, but to bring them into the conversation, to engage them so that they weren't just um, an audience, but that they could be activated. Um, and I think that's very much the approach that I employ today. And so, you know, when you go to the website, you can sign up to get action alerts. Uh, one of the things that we're working on right now, we've sued the administration on the executive order that allows for um, governors and, and uh, county executives to basically veto refugee resettlement, not because we don't believe that it's important to work with 
states and localities as partners. We we do. And in fact, it's actually required by the legislation. We just don't believe that the kind of finger fear mongering and xenophobia um, are, are helpful to the effort. Uh, and, and at the same time, though, we are doing our best to meet the requirements of the executive order because we don't want vulnerable refugee families to be left out in the cold or away from, you know, some baseline services um, because of it. And so this is where it's actually really helpful to have um, community members engage because we're going to need it really across the country. Um, and so those those are things that people can just learn more about on the website and sign up so they can stay connected. Okay. Well, I'm going to transition now to a little bit more of a more personal question. So you're a working mom, you're heading this, this organization. How do you kind of separate your two lives? How are you able to turn off your professional world when you go home and hang out with your family? Yeah. I mean, and I think for me, I've realized that the strength of my leadership as CEO is not divorced from um, the strength of uh, my ability to be a mom to my daughter, um, because I, I just think that there is a certain humanity. Um, I think there's a certain uh, empathy that comes from um, being a mom and um, you know having a toddler and only imagining what parents would have gone through, uh, whether it was family separation or seeing kids in cages. Um, you know, I, I think there is a a way that would do a disservice if I divorced. Um, being a professional from uh, being a being a person. Um, at the same time, I, I know it's really important for me, um, especially you know with Alana being at such a young age, that these are just the precious moments. And I'm very lucky that I've got a wonderful network of of working moms and and others who, even you know uh, just as she was about to be born, would tell me enjoy every single moment because it will fly by um, like the blink of an eye. And I and I know. I experienced that and it resonated with even kind of my White House days where the days were long, mm -hmm. but the months and the years flew by, right? And so right. Um, even when she's two and a half years now, I'm just like, gosh, it felt like, it felt like I had just brought her home from the hospital yesterday. Um, but the other thing that I try to do is to bring her um, to whatever I can, because I also think that... Uh, being a, a working professional is a part of who I am as a mom and, and a role model. Um, so I try to have her come to any speeches um, where it would make sense. I, I like having her come into the office. Um, when I was on the campaign trail, I actually think it was a benefit to her and her development that she's incredibly social um, and she's not afraid of, of crowds. In fact, I worry a little bit about how much of a performer she is because she wakes up and she's, you know, she's dancing and singing and, and choreographing. Um, when I, uh, you know, I, uh, about a month ago, I, I said to her, I said, Alana, we got to go upstairs to get ready for bed. And she said, no, mommy, I got to go downstairs. I've got to give a speech. Um, oh my gosh. Like, oh gosh. That's so funny. <laughs> I love because, that. You know, she sees, she sees both of her parents. My husband runs the National Wildlife Federation. She sees us. Um, you know, in front of audiences trying to make the case on issues that we really care about. And, and that's who I want her to grow up being. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's where for me, um, it's, it's actually trying to blur the lines a little bit to the extent that it's beneficial to both of my roles. Mm -hmm. Now, are you in a, do you get up really early in the morning to try to get everything done? Yeah. So I'm definitely, um, uh, kind of, a. uh, 
a, a morning lark uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to a night owl. The problem is that um, we're we're dealing with a two and a half year old who seems to uh, love our bed more than she loves her own. <laughs> and you know, you don't wake a, a sleeping giant, no, right? And so no. it's really tough when I'm you know up in the morning. I'm like ready to go. The gears are turning, and I've got my to do list running through my head, and I'm just like, oh gosh. But if I move, she's gonna get up. And so as a result, I actually will try to rally at night, but it's just such a lost cause because oh, I'm spending, same. you know, 80%, right? I'm spending 80% of my energy just trying to stay awake. And I just, I, I need to tell myself, and so I'm going to say this to you too, just call it a night, you know, <laughs> it's going to be all right. Um, it'll be better if you can just wake up in the morning. So that's what I, 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 I and I honestly, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what's the best system. Um, I, I, like even going into the office early, um, my hope is that on certain days I can go in early so I can come back early and, and not feel guilty yeah. um, about leaving. And I think it's just, it's so tough for us as moms. I think we just, we're, we're naturally born um, with this mommy guilt. And so everything we do, I think, kind of feeds into it. I cannot escape it, I'll tell you what, because I went from a full-time <laughs> job recently to okay. now working for myself and freelancing. And I'm with yeah. my kids a lot more now. And yeah. I still have it. So I just yeah. don't think it's possible to get rid of. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I think that's right. Um, and I also, yes, my four-year-old has been getting in the bed a lot. So I wake up and I'm like tiptoeing. I'm like, please don't wake up. Like I just have I to get something out of my bathroom and then you just stay right there. Don't wake right, up. Exactly. Yeah, it's rough. But I'm like, you just remind <laughs> yourself that it won't be like this forever. They will eventually be older. And not that you want them to be older, but it's just... Yeah. That never-ending balance. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Uh, So if you were to talk to someone that maybe, someone maybe in college or that is interested in following sort of the same kind of career path as you, potentially working in the White House someday, what is maybe some career advice or just advice in general that you might give them that you've learned along the way? Yeah, so um, I think I'd say three things. Um, and, and some of them are going to probably be less palatable than others, uh, because I'm sure that if someone said it to me, uh, I would have been like, yeah, yeah, you say that now, given where you are, you have the luxury. Um, uh, but, but really I, I, I do mean this and I, and I, um, uh, so I, so I think first, um, don't overthink things, uh, because, you know, I, I never had kind of that 10 year plan. Um, I had kind of a very rough sense of, you know, maybe what I wanted to do. But I think that I had sort of seen um, how much life changes, you know, even with my parents, right? Like the fact that they move halfway across the world when they're 40 um, years old, 40 something years old with two young children. It's like, could you have necessarily expected that? And so I, I just think that um, it's really important to have flexibility because I do think it opens your mind to the second thing I'm going to say, which is um, say yes. Like, I think it's so easy to doubt yourself and to let that doubt lead to saying no. Um, And I think that, you know, even when, uh, you know, I had this sort of moment when there was a woman who approached me after I'd given the keynote at this uh, at this political summit. And she said uh, and I was, you know, I I was very clearly very pregnant with my daughter. And she said, um, you know. I, uh, we, I've been looking for 
there's a there's the group of women CEOs who've been looking for a candidate, um, some candidates to run for executive office because they really do believe that, and I I strongly believe this. One of the biggest hurdles we have is women in executive leadership. Mm-hmm. It's easy for people to think about women as collaborators, right, as legislators, as as uh, VPs, but I think we are still uh, struggling with um, having women viewed as as strong executives um, and. And so she basically said, you know, I've, I've, I, she pulls out, it was like a West Wing moment. She pulls out this rip, uh, crumpled piece of paper. She said, I've, I've got a dozen names that I've vetted. Um, none of them can beat the current governor, but I just found my candidate. I just have to wait until she gives, uh, she delivers her baby to <laughs> convince her. And hand to heart, it was so far off my radar that I thought, oh. And people had, you know, as I said, people had started talking to me about running for office that I thought to myself, I was like, oh, I should meet this woman because I'd love to <laughs> chat with her about right. And I just think that like, because in my mind, the idea of running for governor as my first race, having never really worked on campaigns except for when I was, you know, seven or eight years old, um, knocking on doors with my mom for Senator Mikulski, I, I, uh, I, I was really closed off to the possibility. And I just think it's really important for us to be open-minded. Um, I also think, frankly, it shouldn't always come to us, right? Like it, it should be that we're the initiators and, and the thought starters and leaders on some of this. But I also realize that sometimes it's it's tough for us to get out of our own way. And so sometimes the initiative from others is important and it's really important for us to be receptive to that. And then I think the third piece is um, – Follow what you love. I know that sounds really cliche, but it is one of those things where as I went through my career, um, I did things because I was like, oh, that's actually really interesting. And so when you look back in my career, it's like, so I was in management consulting. I was in, um, I was a, you know, practicing lawyer. I, you know, went into government. I studied molecular cell, cellular and developmental biology as well as political science. And there, there was sort of in the, in the back of my mind, some semblance of how this all would come together, perhaps. But none of, I mean, I'd probably say 80% of that not, ne- never actually worked out or came to fruition. But but that was okay because that wasn't what drove me to do what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what has led me to never regret some of the choices that I made. I probably took a little bit more of a circuitous route through mm-hmm. things. You know, my husband and I joke sometimes that people leave conversations with us with their head spinning because <laughs> as people, a lot of students still ask this question, should I go to law school or not? You know, my, my husband... Um, uh, decided not to go to law school as he was actually driving halfway across the country. Um, he was heading to Stanford and halfway across the country, he is at an Applebee's and he was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. Why am I going <laughs> to law school? And I went, you know, to Yale thinking, I don't want to be a lawyer, but of course I would go to law school. And I'm so glad that I did it. And he's so glad that he didn't do it. And both of those paths have worked out in the sense that we both work um, and run, you know, great um, national nonprofits. And so that's just my counsel to say, you know, you just, you, you're never going to be able to game this um, system a hundred percent. And so uh, why try? Yeah, I can see how someone uh, might come away not sure what to do if they ask you to go to law school, if they should go to law school. That's funny. (laughs) Uh, so how did you meet your husband? I'm just curious. I love how you have both of your last names. It's 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 a lot, but I love that. People are probably like, wait a second, I'm confused. Yeah, exactly. They're like, okay, so I, I, I get the Krish and the Vignaraja, but where's the Omera part? Yeah, you're like, what? Uh, <laughs> um, so, it, uh, so, so Colin, Patrick, Omera, um, 
as Irish name, I think, as you can get, mm-hmm. um, was, uh, it's interesting. So we actually overlapped in grad school. So we both went to Oxford on Marshall scholarships and we lived about 1500 feet apart. Um, he was a class behind because he actually had taken, um, a little additional time, um, off between college and, and, and grad school. Um, so we lived a hundred, uh, 1500 feet apart, um, had some, uh, we had mutual friends. We were on the same scholarship. So we actually attended some of the same events but never met one another. And so fast forward 10 years later, we're on a one-week trip of strangers to Israel. Um, it's basically sort of a birthright trip that a foundation sponsored um, for non- non-Jewish people and specifically was sponsored for Rhodes and Marshalls. And uh, that's where we met. By the end of the week, we were planning our wedding. Oh, my um, gosh. And uh, we went back. Like, literally? Later. Yeah, Literally. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we went back a year later and that's where we got engaged and we got married five months after that. Um, wow. So uh, that's kind of my pitch to, to particularly women out there who were just like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I was not a spring chicken when I met him. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I always had had so many doubts about so many of, uh, of the people that the guys I was, I was dating. And um, my friends would always be the would always be the ones egging me on and being like, just stick with it, you know. Maybe he's not perfect, but he's like he's really great. And and I'd be like, yeah, this just doesn't feel right. And then with Colin, I actually was the one who came back and I said to my friends, I was just like, this is a guy who I want to marry. And they would be like, wait a second, like let's put the brakes on this. You've only known <laughs> this guy for a week. Like how can you be planning your wedding? And um, I just think that when you know, you know. And if it doesn't feel right there's probably a reason. And so, mm-hmm. you know, of course, relationships take work, even in marriage, they take work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I but I think it's important, because I do sometimes think we put pressure on ourselves. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely did not go to Israel thinking that I was going to meet my husband there. Um, right. And so it's, again, kind of my perspective is, just be open to it. And mm-hmm. also just be open to say, uh, like opportunities, like, I, I didn't, you know, I was, I initially was very hesitant to go to Israel during, um, a winter holiday vacation, uh, taking off a week of personal time, but there was clearly a, a reason. Um, and he felt the same way. He had just taken on this, this, uh, job and, and was getting situated. And yet, um, he just felt like there was something compelling him to go. And I just think that like, you've got to sometimes quiet your mind, um, as it, as it's sort of thinking through and, and to sometimes just feel an intuition and go with it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. <laughs> if you could have dinner or drinks with anyone, who would it be? Anyone, anyone on your uh, top five? Oh gosh. Gosh. I feel like this is one of these like fellowship interview. Questions. I know. I, I have sh- an answer to this. I, <laughs> I think I sent this like as a pre-question, like, but so long, like from the first interview that yeah. we had to redo. So pr- I can, I should have resent it. Yeah, I'm trying to even think of like some of the um, some of the athletes that I uh, I really admire because I you know I think Serena Williams is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I yeah so so my answer is going to be Serena. Okay, um, Serena Serena Williams because uh, I love the fact that she has um, been fierce and fearless uh, as an athlete, um, but that persona um, doesn't kind of end when she's off the court Mm -hmm. and you can sort of see it and sense it in everything she does, um, including being a mom. 
Now, obviously, I, you know, I don't sort of equate myself and my experiences with kind of what she's accomplished and goes through every day, but there is um, a, a way in which I admire her ability to be such a strong athlete, but also um, uh, kind of a, a very a very clearly caring and, and kind of soft mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really, I really respect that. Um, as you can probably sense from some of the answers I gave to on how do you balance um, being a mom and a CEO, uh, I definitely have not figured it out. And so <laughs> I always appreciate um, conversations with um, other other women, uh, you know, um, including you know some of our conversations uh, about kind of how do you how do you navigate um, this incredibly complicated quagmire, right? Where it's so easy to get stuck and to get stuck in our own ways and to, um, and, and, and that's where I, I, I'd, I'd love a conversation with her to pick yeah. her brain. Yeah. Oh man. I, I don't think any person has it all figured out, but yeah. I agree that she's a great role model. She's a great person that's really visible in, in mm-hmm. both of those roles and, and how she's speaking out. Um, okay. So the last question I always like to ask people is, have you read any books lately that you can recommend? And do you have any favorite podcasts? Yeah, so I actually just started reading um, "Know My Name," um, mm-hmm. and I and I did it because uh, uh, she had actually spoken um, at the at the Fortune Most Powerful Women Summit that I just came back. So this is Chanel Miller, okay. who was, I guess, Emily Doe when she came out and she spoke out. Um, about the sexual assault at, at Stanford. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, this has obviously been top of mind um, for me just because of the, the Me Too movement and the shaming um, that we continue to kind of perpetrate um, and target uh, women, but particularly with young women, right, who are students um, and they, they go to school to learn and develop. And, and the fact that we don't um, and I, don't, I hate to use the word protect because I don't mean it to sound paternalistic, but that we don't afford um, our young women the same conducive, safe learning environment that we, uh, you know, privilege our our, uh, our boys with. I, I just think that it's how we've kind of perpetrated um, the the kind of the system and the inequities that exist. And so um, it has uh, been a powerful read. I think she's such a um, authentic voice. Um, and I really just credit her with being, um, out there, uh, on what, you know, still I think remains a taboo topic. Um, and then in terms of podcasts, so I actually have about a hour commute each way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I sort of cycle through some of the, you know, the NPR podcasts. Um, I actually even started doing a little bit of, uh, just, um, learning Spanish. So I'm actually going to Guatemala and Mexico next week. Um, and I am terrible with languages. So I actually try to listen to some of the Rosetta Stone lessons um, on my phone when I'm driving. Mm-hmm. So that becomes sort of my version of a podcast yeah. uh, where I'm trying to um, take in as much as I can, uh-huh. uh, knowing my deficiencies. <laughs> Yeah, those commutes, I mean, commutes are hard, but they can be really good for, like, getting things like that done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, and it's really funny, too, because I also, um, you know, my team has been great about knowing that I really want to use that time as productively as possible. So it was really funny because my parents actually live a bit closer to um, our office, and so there was a week 
over the summer holidays where I just couldn't get up to Syracuse, which is where my husband's family is. is um, and, and he took up our daughter and I had to stick, stick around. So I was commuting back and forth from um, my parents' home for those few days. And having a 15 minute commute was <laughs> earth shattering. But yeah. At the same time, it actually threw off my schedule because my team typically will coordinate calls. Right. So I get, you know, I get to my final destination in 15 minutes and I become very impatient with the call because it's one thing if you're kind of stuck in traffic, right? You can have a very casual, right. yep. calm conversation. <laughs> but I'd be like, okay, this call is over because my driving is done. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so true about the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, Krish. Well, thank you for taking an hour of your time to just let me ask you all kinds of questions. I really appreciate it. I think what you guys are doing is really wonderful. And I just love your personal story too. I think it's really inspiring. And I know that people listening are going to think the same. Well, thank you so much for for the, this series because I really do think it's incredible that you um, find amazing women to speak with and you let your audiences connect. Um, I'm not sure I count as one of them. You do. But I really appreciate. <laughs> totally do. Um, you know, <laughs> being able to share my experiences and really appreciate your audience taking the time um, to listen to, uh, and, and hear about. It. Well, thanks for listening to this episode, you guys. I hope you'll check out Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services and just go see what Krish is all about because she's awesome. Thank you for listening. I'm so glad that you're tuning in every week. It means so much to me. Um, and I will see you next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.